Hi, I'm Pete Seligman, and this is season four of my podcast, The Next Step. This year, we hosted the first ETA forum at Manly Beach in Sydney, Australia. So in this season of the podcast, I'll be sharing with you the audio from each session of the forum. At the beginning of each episode, I'll provide an intro to the speakers, and then at the end, I'll share with you the key messages and insights that I took from each presentation. If you were there on the day, these episodes will provide a good opportunity to reflect on your learning. If you weren't able to join us this time, even though you missed the networking, these episodes are a good summary of the content shared at the event. I hope you enjoy them. If I was talking to a family office and trying to get it in my head, it's about saying, do you really want to ship five million bucks off to a fund and sit there and get a quarterly report, giving you a bit of a sense of what they're doing? Possibly not, or maybe you do as part of what your PE is. But on the other hand, do you really want six o'clock on a Saturday night, the MD of a company in the suburbs ringing you saying, you know, we've just had these two key people resign. And I'd be selling the search fund as being sort of a cracking opportunity to get exposure to those returns, proximity to the asset, but not the same responsibilities. In this episode, we hear the keynote speech from the ETA forum. It's delivered by Tim Moore, who's the founder of Dorado Capital. He's a valuable member of our search fund community and originally a self-funded searcher himself, who's now a prominent Australian investor. He gives a really interesting background to the history of search, a bit of his view on what might happen to the market in the future, and then some perspectives on family office and the kinds of things that family offices are looking for from an investment perspective. I'll leave you with Tim now, and then I'll come back at the end with a bit of my feedback regarding the key points from his speech. Look, I always think of the search fund ecosystem as having four key components, which is pretty obvious. Obviously, on the searcher side, we're talking about that entrepreneurial management talent. And then you've got to marry that up with the capital that gets used initially for for search and then more importantly for acquisition. And very importantly, that capital also to give mentoring advice. I perhaps had three initially because I thought we'd have the established businesses. But then when I looked at the sponsor, I thought it was pretty important to add in the debt. So I put the bank in there as well. As I looked at Pete's agenda, it really struck me there's there's fantastic coverage um, around searches and around businesses and obviously the judo guys talking about banking. And so I thought with that being well covered, um, the focus I'd try to give to the conversation would be here. Before I go on, I I do feel slightly like I'm a pretender because um, I'm from a family office and uh, my colleague, Jake Maisie, was um, very instrumental in grabbing the whole search thing with huge enthusiasm, persuading us to back it. And uh, relative to me, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of it. So if you have any simple questions after this, I'd be delighted to help you. Anything more complex, that's what Jake looks like. (laughs) There are people here who have not got some of the early history, so I'm just going to do it very briefly, but but I do think it's important. Um, Irving Grosbeck's very much associated with Stanford now, but he was actually at Harvard when the key moment happened, um, which is now 38 years ago or whatever. Um, a lecturer there on the MBA program, and, and the key connection was one individual student a guy called Jim Southern, who I presume when he was doing his MBA didn't look like that. Um, And really the discussion that Irv 
had with Jim was to say, if you look at this class, Harvard graduates about 1,000 MBAs in, in, in each annual program. By and large, in, in these days, in the, in the early 80s, these are people who are going into big family businesses to run where people have written out checks to pay for them to get that education. Or they have an aspiration to climb the corporate ladder and maybe one day be in a C-suite of a Fortune 500 company. And Jim's pitch was to say, you know, I don't have any family money. I'm not going to a family business. And I can't actually think of anything worse than climbing the corporate ladder. I, I want to be the CEO of a growing business that, that, that I can get into and run. And to his credit, Irv thought, this guy is so talented. I should try and find half a dozen people and we'll put a bit of money in and back him. And rather than him leaving college, taking up a job at Goldman's or something, he should go out there and search for a business. And so that was the very first search fund. Um, Jim's search ended up with him dealing with a listed company called American Printing. Um, the United States runs its insurance jurisdiction by state. So there are 50 states there and they have a legal requirement that the documentation as it relates to policies and claims and everything else is very specific and different for each state and it evolves on an almost monthly basis. So printing all of those things is a complete nightmare and American Printing had a division called their Authentic Insurance Documents Division, and that's all it did. And Jim bought that business out from that division and ran it for 10 years. Uh, and Irv and the guys who put the money in that got a 24x return, which for those who are mathematically minded, it's a 37.5% IRR over 10 years. Very nice. Fast forward to the most recent... Um, Stanford material uh, and just focusing on North America, US and Canada. There have been 526 funds and it's a little bit of a confronting headline there because it says 60% have no result. But I mean, in my mind, what we're pursuing is to search for a business, buy a business, sell that business at the end of a journey. That, that's the result. And so it's pretty harrowing to think that in 60% of cases, that result is not yet an outcome. So there's been $3.4 billion of Australian capital put into those 526 funds. And the 60% breaks down to roughly a quarter um, didn't conclude a search, they ended up abandoning. And another quarter are still operating and those 138 businesses, you know, whatever will happen will happen and some are stellar and probably some not so stellar. And then they've actually been 39 where there have been acquisitions and the acquisitions have failed. You didn't hear that judo guys. Um, <laughs> so let's then focus on the 40% where we, where we have had a result. So again, obviously we've still got our 3.4 billion of capital invested. And it's interesting to think that the capital invested by investors is almost identical to the capital extracted, or sorry, the profits extracted by searchers. So the searchers who are top left there have received out of these 40% of successful searches 3.6 billion and the investors 14.5 billion. And last night over a drink, I, I got the impression the searchers feel like they need more and we kind of go, it's our money and they go, it's our business and whatever, but that, that's where it is. And it's nice to think that a quarter of the businesses in that population uh, um, 138 are still to produce a return. So those numbers are, are, are going to go up quite a lot. This is uh, the topic of 
of Jake Nicholson or partly the topic of Jake Nicholson's discussion, I think so. Um, Jake, my Jake, Jake Maisie and I just got around a whiteboard and threw a few numbers up which we'll share with you and I think Jake can then correct them. But I think it's interesting just to, to look at. Um, we start off, it didn't look like this after a few red wines I have to say, but we start off and I'm focused here on traditional search. We're not talking about self-funded searches. Um, so Alex launched the first fund in 2019 in Australia. In uh, the two years, 2020 and 2021, which were obviously pandemic affected, there were three additional funds launched. Six followed in 2022. So we sort of thought, let's make some assumptions. So the first assumption is that we maybe get two more before Christmas. Um, that gives us eight. We repeat that again in 2023 and then say 18% per annum growth of the number of funds in Australia. That would see a kind of trajectory, 8, 9, 11, 13. So by 2030, you'd have 30 sort search funds launched. And, and I think that's um, be very interested in Jake Nicholson's take, but I think that seems pretty sensible. Um, that would mean a total of 150 funds launched. Another way of looking at this is think about the investment opportunity. Um, let's say we suffer a, a worse failure result than they do in the United States, maybe at 150, 100 executed purchase, perhaps for $15 million as an average acquisition price. Um, Judo say they're very happy to do 80%, but let's pretend it's 40. <laughs> um, that means as investors across that pool, it's not a very distant horizon, we're going to find $900 million of capital. And Judo got to put in 600 of debt and we're off to the races. <clears throat> so today, as I said, I wanted to focus on certain things. So just quickly to cover what I, I thought was worth spending some time on. I've got a family office background, obviously, so it seemed logical to spend a bit of time on that because there will be people who I think that should be very relevant to. A lot of the questions I get from people is, you know, what, what are they investing in? There's a lot of misconceptions about what family offices are invested in and what their characteristics are like, etc. And then secondly, you know, how does search actually fit into that model? And, and finally, just a few tips, I suppose, for pitching to family offices if you, if you buy my line that that's the way to go. If we think of the pools of investment capital, they're traditionally sort of thought of as five different pools. Um, I use the phrase high wealth individuals rather than high net wealth or, or anything dissimilar because a high wealth individual is an ATO definition. Um, it's defined as being an individual with net assets of 30 million Australian dollars or more. And the ATO estimates that there's about 5,000 people in Australia in that category. They tend to rely on external accountants and advisors, excuse me, um, for their advice. Um, and I think that's why family offices differ a bit. Family offices take a much more formal approach to asset management, asset allocation, and tend to look over a much longer time horizon. The other three groups, charities and schools, institutions um, that, are, that are not for profits, people are aware of. Institutions in Australia are obviously dominated by our super business. Frightening to think that in the 13 weeks to June 2022, Australians contributed $44 billion to super just in that 13-week period. And we've got a $3.3 trillion market. And then obviously our future fund, our sovereign wealth fund. 
Being realistic for an asset class of this size that's this fledgling, they're all irrelevant. So you've got sort of hard to identify people who are sometimes low profile on the left. To me, family offices are a very logical focus. When you say family office to people, they immediately get a preconception. And I'm looking out across a couple of people I know who are in family offices and none of them, that there isn't a typical family office. But people do have that, oh, it's kind of oak paneled boardrooms and older grumpy business people. <laughs> um, they come in lots and lots of flavors. I mean, we're in Sydney and there are, there are people you're familiar with um, in this part of the world. But if you go to Skip Capital and speak to someone like Kim or go to Grok, speak to someone like Annie, these are very different businesses. Um, coming from Perth, we do it even more differently. Um, so we have good toys over there. Um, people fly these sort of things um, and make money in strange ways. You've probably never heard of a guy called Lawrence Escalante, but he's one of our family offices with a few billion dollars under management that's from uh, online gaming out of the United States. So get in your mindset. You're speaking to a very broad range of people by age, stage, level of advice, etc. I turned to the UBS report to, to, to look at where's the money go. And I think it's interesting because to a certain extent, what you don't want to find is your surprise. So I had a lot of preconceptions. I then got the 2022 UBS report, which is freely downloadable if anyone wants to look at it. Um, and the nice thing was I kind of thought well, that's what I imagined. So, so that was good. So any of the figures on the following slides I, I, I give, I'll credit UBS for. First of all, in terms of, of the money, the two key themes you could say is it's in developed countries. There's 200 and whatever countries in the world, but the money goes to developed countries. And secondly, an enormous amount goes in shares and fixed interest stocks and bonds. If we take the developed developing, it's 88%, 12%. There's a list there of developed markets people will be familiar with. And you've got to remember that in the developing pool are some massive areas, China, India, Brazil, all of that is considered developing, but it's only 12% of the money. Alternative and traditional is the phrases used. I'd much rather use uh, liquid for the right-hand side blue and illiquid for the um, orange. I mean, this came from many, many decades of people having bond equity portfolios in a kind of 40-60 mix, etc., and, and all of their investments being there. That's changed now. Um, but I'm going to spend a minute on the right-hand side because it's worth just having in your head what, why a family office is so attracted to having so much money in there. And there's a key reason. In terms of size, these are the um, 16 stock exchanges, and I just picked 16 because it finishes with us. <laughs> um, the, the sizes are gargantuan. Um, the two United States big ones alone have got, in uh, Australian dollar terms, 66 trillion in market cap but it's frightening when you think of those stock exchanges to think that the bond markets dwarf them so uh, i haven't got figures for 2022 but 2021 the bond markets 188 billion the holy grail t plus two so in the old days in the back office these talk about t plus two explain it to people as you buy on a tuesday and you'll need to pay the money on a thursday but basically trade date plus two that massive pool of assets, massive pool of exposures, geographies or whatever, you make a decision to get in, 
you pay your money up two days later, you make a decision to get out, you get your money out two days later. That is of huge, huge appeal. So now going to the orange side, and we'll just whiz through a couple of the asset classes that are there. Collectibles, people talk about them a lot and they're great and they'll, you know, always talk about the particular Bentley car that got brought and it's tripled or whatever. The reality of this in family offices is usually less than 1% of asset allocation. Similarly for gold, precious metal and commodities, less than 2%. Coming up a bit, hedge funds. I'm not a hedge fund fan. I hope that doesn't come through. It's a sort of unusual approach. When you speak to family offices who are in hedge funds, it's almost always they've had a very close relationship with someone who's had a good experience and it's a referral and they've put a little bit of money in and it's gone well and whatever. The bit that is really takes get a bit of getting your head around is there is just kind of no explanation of what happens in the black box. Um, there's a range of strategies. I've listed some, listed some on the left. And you only have to look at the funds under management. These are massive businesses. Um, but talking about a, a larger amount of assets than, than the previous ones we mentioned, but still about 4% of assets. And for the TV people, obviously, that's the world of uh, billions. Uh, and if you're interested, that was actually based on a real fund, a guy called Steve Cohen, who ran SAC Capital Advisors, which doesn't exist any longer. Real estate, not surprisingly, real estate's pretty... Pretty big at 12%. I apologize for the picture. Um, so here's a map out of the UBS thing. I think it picks it up pretty well. As I would describe it, everything on the right is liquid. So 57% in these liquids, which is basically equities, fixed income, and cash. The left-hand side is the illiquids, and we've dealt with everything up the top left. But what that leaves is 21% of family office assets are invested in private equity. And that's the journey I kind of want to get to because what we are talking about in search funds is front and center of the private equity asset class. Yes, it's different. It's not giving money to um, Pacific equity partners or whatever, but it is seen by family offices as in that asset class. And that's a big asset class that they're very fond of. Um, so, just want to spend a couple of minutes on private equity. Obviously, having espoused the virtues of T plus two and getting out of stuff at short notice, um, you're now owning unlisted stock as a common shareholder and you need to plan to be in it for seven to 10 years. Might be less, but you need to plan to be in it for seven to 10 years. Feels a bit like being here. Um, on types of private equity, in Australia, People talk so much about venture capital, they sometimes don't put it in the private equity basket, but from an asset allocation point of view, there's three categories of private equity and venture capital is obviously one of them. People always have the impression that venture capital is there when there's two guys on a whiteboard. It tends not to be the case. You do tend to have founders doing a bit of funding, relatives, bit of seed money, bit of angel money, and then venture capital when they, when they sense that there's an opportunity and it's going right, come in. Um, obviously all about very high growth innovation or very disruptive business models. Um, I've been lucky enough to be an investor in every fund that Blackbird have done since inception in 2012. Um, and it's a kind of, does my head in because it's been spectacularly successful and spectacularly profitable. And along the journey, lots and lots and lots of businesses have folded. And that's just what you have to accept. 
Um, obviously, top left is their star performer. There's a range of other Australian examples of venture capital funded business. Next category is growth equity. This is really about great business with growth prospects, great management team. You're putting the money in to tweak the business, operational improvements, fairly limited levels of debt. And the next pool is the leverage buyer, which is a bit different, where the model really works because you're putting in extraordinary levels of debt. Lots of examples. Now I've tuned you into it and you think about it, you won't believe how much you see in the Fin Review of things being bought by private equity. It kind of just drifts past your radar because you never see it again. Um, I thought to myself yesterday, I'll bet you there'll be an announcement on a new PE buy today that hopefully someone will know the name of. And I looked overnight and 4 and 20 pies just got bought by private equity. So it's, it's happening all the time. It's below the radar. And those are examples of some businesses that, that are owned by private equity, which probably most people did know. Um, Pete was eager to try and have an interactive session with some questions. So I hope people are, are thinking about that. And while you're reflecting about questions, obviously by background, it's probably worth saying by way of introduction that um, prior to even hearing what a search fund was, I was a self-funded searcher um, who did a search which ended up acquiring a mining software business. So happy to talk about finance, happy to talk about family offices, happy to talk about um, about search funds. I do think, however, it's worth finishing with a few tips because when you've sat through an awful lot of presentations, you do have some thoughts. The first one is, it is extraordinary how you can have someone who has an encyclopedic knowledge of their business. Great communication skills, you know, just really, really good. They come into a boardroom and there is some magnetic attraction to their deck and they just read through the deck line by line, which is a stifling and paralyzing experience for the recipient. So whatever you're going to do, uh, I would suggest you do not read your pitch deck. The next one that's amazing is you have people with fabulous knowledge of their business. They know every number and everything that relates to the competition and everything. They get a question. Now that's your dream. The worst thing you want to do is you do a pitch and the guys sit there and say nothing with their arms folded. So suddenly you've got someone who's listening and they ask a specific question, you know, your key, key competitors, Ferguson's, and tell me, Michael, you know, their baseline product, um, you know, how have they priced it compared to you? And the guy knows this stuff backwards and he comes back with an answer, oh, it's, it's, it's probably a bit lower than ours. And you think, no, you've got to have the details. You really need to, if you, if you have them, share them. Say, look, our product, our lowest product, 4,600 bucks, theirs is 3,950. This is how we see it, let's talk about it. You've got to use those opportunities. Financials, people can't help themselves. <laughs> they sit in these meetings, you've got the data in front of you. First year modeled forecast EBIT is 3.9. First time the guy speaks about it, he says nearly four. Second time he talks about it, he says four. And you think, but it's 3.9. <laughs> then he starts talking about costs and the costs are 2.1, no, the costs are two. And in the head of the recipient, they're going, you either exaggerate or you don't. <laughs> if the number's 3.9, say it's 3.9, because it's just going to make you look bad if you inflate the revenue stuff and depress the other stuff. Competition. You'll get a fluid, fabulous presentation and you go through the management team and the product and everything else and you get to the end and the guy says, any questions? You think, whoa, 
this is obviously a cracking industry because there's no competition and it's just, let's not talk about that. You talk to a CEO of an ASX 100 company and you ask them, you know, how, how are things in the management team? And inevitably they'll say to you, look, I've got a bit of a concern about this. We're doing a conversion to SAP next year. My chief technology officer has never done that. We need to work out how to bolster that. That's going to be interesting. I'm a bit concerned about it. You know, drop down to a $20 million revenue business on the outskirts of Melbourne and you say to the guy and he gets the management team, no, 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 there's four of us on the executive committee. We've got everything covered. And it, it just, it's much better to, to talk about where there are gaps and how they're going to be remedied. There's negatives, don't ignore them, deal with them. I think the saddest thing is at the same time that schools found it very uncomfortable to send back school reports saying, Johnny's an irritating little shit and doesn't concentrate. He has no future. And, and, and that all disappeared. One slide disappeared out of every Australian pitch deck and that was the old SWAT. Every time you got a pitch deck, there used to be, turn your mind internally, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Look externally, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? Great slide to have a chat out. Those slides just disappeared because you don't talk about negatives. Big mistake. On the capital raise, there's a few things people want to know. You can be very succinct. You can be very quick. They want to know how much money's being raised, how's it being deployed, what's the deal structure, who else is likely to be along for the journey, and what's the timetable for the raise. And once you're through that, that's it. You suddenly get people come up with all this unnecessary complexity. If there's questions, they'll come out. And the final one is someone's done the most wonderful pitch. They've got this engaged audience. Everything's going well. And as it comes to the end, they kind of can't help themselves but say, so, you know, you know you're in or, you know, what, what are your thoughts around how much you'd like to invest or whatever? And it kind of spoils the whole thing. There's no, no rush to close. Anyway, as I say, I'm extremely happy to take some questions. I hope that overview gave you a sense of why I think that um, family offices are a good place to focus on for raising capital. And um, yeah, delighted to take questions. Please. I think that, um, that there's a couple of things I'd say there. You will have some advisors helping you, no doubt, both on legal and accounting side. And some of those advisors will, in their own client basis, have family offices. So that's one source that's worth talking about. The second one is, even if you speak to a family office who say, look, this is just not for us, it's, it's not something we're doing that's of interest, you should always say to them, uh, uh, you know, do you have any of your peers you think would be interested? You'd be really surprised how people will say, yeah, well, you know, I was at lunch the other day with someone I think this would really resonate with. But by and large, um, for confidentiality reasons, tax reasons, all sorts of things, family offices do tend to keep a pretty low profile. So it's not, there's not an easy register to find. Um, there are a couple of organizations that have specialized a bit in focusing on them. One is a group called um, Private Wealth Network. And the second is a group called Table Club. Um, and it might be worth, you know, but then 
those businesses curate the family offices they've got and they sort of, in a sense, are acting as gatekeepers, so there's some issues. Um, but but you, you, you'll get there, but you won't find an easy directory of them. <clears throat> I think that's that's a really good point I, I, because I've overlooked making this point. Many family offices have got direct investments into private businesses, including including ourselves. Those are sometimes legacy ones where you've sold out of something, but there's a subsidiary the buyer didn't want, so you end up with it. Sometimes there you thought it was a good idea and you buy it. I, I wouldn't say without exception, but I'd certainly say by and large family offices hate them and, and they are time-consuming. I find myself going to board meetings and reading papers and going through budgets and whatever these businesses. And in my mind, one of the big appeals when, when, when Jake Maisie talked to me about search funds was to say, this is an opportunity to be one step removed from this. So I think if I was talking to a family office and trying to get it in my head, it's about saying, do you really want to ship five million bucks off to a fund and sit there and get a quarterly report giving you a bit of a sense of what they're doing? Possibly not, or maybe you do as part of what your PE is. But on the other hand, do you really want six o'clock on a Saturday night, the MD of a company in the suburbs ringing you saying, you know, we just had these two key people resign. And I'd be selling the search fund as being sort of a cracking opportunity to get exposure to those returns, proximity to the asset, but not the same responsibilities. I'd say two things stand out. The first one is every family office will tell you that oh, we're not sheep. You know, we're very we 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 we're, we think through our stuff and we've got our own particular view and we do whatever. But I can tell you, if I wind the clock back eighteen months, every conversation I had, they're crazy keen on tech, the stock market, <laughs> and that's changed a bit. So you can't help but be swept along by fads. So fads come and go. In my mind, some of the reversal of the valuation, some of the markdowns, some of the lack of cash in some of the tech companies is playing really well into the search fund community because people are thinking, well, hold a second, that is probably a better idea than I thought. Some of the volatility in the stock, volatility in the stock market, the same. I think the second point I'd make is if, if you're in a fund and you're an institutional investor under an institutional mandate with a deed, not only are the things you have to do, but you also have to almost document why you don't do stuff. And you see that fund documentation. We've made a decision to put $28 million into Westpac. Down the bottom, it'll explain to you why they haven't gone into NAB, CBA, and ANZ. One of the things that people really like about working in a family office is, you know what? We'll do what we want to do. And if there is a theme that comes out of that, that they invest on personal relationships. You know, this morning I walked in and I saw Ken Gaunt. Now to me, 
think to myself, okay, we've we, we backed Rob's business. We want to keep backing Rob's business. What if the old man's a disaster? I better go and introduce myself to him. <laughs> and, 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 you know, immediately in my brain, I'm thinking about that. You, you, you know, in the old days, people would say it's a no dickheads policy. But, but family offices will say, great idea, great returns, great management team. None of I like the guy, not doing it. So personal relationship, very important. Nick, last one. So um, I'll give you the chain because you know the people involved. So the first person to ever mention a search fund to me was Tom Oosterhoff from East Court Capital. Um, and it was in a query sense. Have you heard about it? And you never like saying to your son-in-law, don't know what you're talking about. So I said, uh, no. <laughs> and he said, oh, uh, Ak Sabah's been talking to me about search funds. It's interesting. You'd find it interesting. And Ak was doing some coaching work with us. So I went and spoke to Ak and his partner, Louis. And we were interested in doing some things with them. And they encouraged us to look at doing something on our own. But I'll be honest with you. At the time I undertook my search, if, if someone had put in front of me that Stanford Bible, it would have been yeah, a godsend. Um, Look, it went very well and that was great, but it could easily have not, not done that. Um, and it was just one of those ideas with each blog you read, each person you spoke to, you just thought this idea is a good idea and it got better and better. Thank you very much, everybody. Love to, it's, it's great looking across so many faces I've seen on uh, Zoom, LinkedIn or other places but haven't met and really hope we have the opportunity to chat and um, I think Pete's put together a wonderful day and thank you very much. Now that was an excellent way to start the day. It was fantastic to hear from Tim given his breadth of knowledge, not only in investing in search but also investing in a range of other asset classes and also his background as an operator and self-funded searcher himself. So I really enjoyed the kickoff that he gave to the day with that keynote. You'll hear that he gave a really good history of search all the way back right to the beginning at Stanford and Harvard, and then provides a bit of the journey up to today and then also kind of forecasts into the future. So one of the key things that I liked from his analysis was that view that by 2030, we might be up to launching 30 funds each year in Australia, and at that point have launched a total of 150 and if you distill that all back to the capital requirement over that period, the next eight years, it could be up to $1.5 billion worth of capital, a combination of equity and debt that could be deployed into search funds and this asset class over the next eight years. So huge opportunity there and a big marketplace that we've got the opportunity to build, but also the challenge to build. The other thing that I really liked from Tim's speech was the way that he gave some insight into what exactly it is that family offices are looking for, because I think a lot of searchers will be pitching to family office because they're a really important part of the search fund investment community, not least of which because most family offices have direct business operations experience and small business experience. And my summary of his takeouts was don't read your pitch deck and that makes real sense. Know the details so that you can answer those questions in detail. And the bit I'd add to that is if you don't know the detail, just say that you don't know the detail and take the question on notice. Bit of authenticity there is pretty important. Make sure you tell it as it is. So if it really is 
good, say that it is. If it's not, say that it's not. Make sure that you're including the risks and the negatives and the challenges that you'll be facing um, through your investment program because um, it's important to, to recognise that it's not all rosy. And then when trying to work out exactly what you need in terms of your pitch, he summarised it by saying, make sure that you have the amount you want to raise, what you're going to use those funds for, what the cap table looks like, and he put it as who else is on the journey, the structure of the deal, and when you need the money. He also closed by saying, don't rush to get commitments. It might take a couple of meetings. You don't need to secure that money the first time you meet the family office. So give them some time to reflect and get to know you over a couple of meetings potentially. So make sure you factor that into your program as well. So anyway, I really enjoyed that session. I think that you could have taken some really interesting points from that. And I really liked hearing from Tim and being there on the day and experiencing that process. He did a great job at really just kicking us off into the great day that was ahead. 